said, you know, Tim, why are you involved in politics? It's a mucky business. It's not really a good thing for a Christian to do. I don't know what my answer was then, but the years that followed, I've thought about it a lot and thought, yes, politics is a mucky business, but then again, so is everything else since the fall. Um, and it's an opportunity and an arena in which to serve. It's a mission field. Welcome, everybody. It's great to be with you. Simon Gilbo here. And this week, I am with Tim Farron. Tim Farron's, uh, for those of you that aren't familiar with the British political context, he was the leader of the Liberal Democrats between 2015 and 2017. So in, in the UK, you've got... Uh, Conservatives and Labour are two main parties, but the Liberal Democrats are a very significant third party. In fact, they are in coalition from 2010 to 2015. And so they have a very significant voice, a key voice to play in our democratic system. Tim's been a member of parliament for Westmoreland Longsdale since 2005. And before that, I gather you're in higher education. So that's that's a bit of introduction. Welcome. Thanks for having us, Simon. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you. So most of my guests, Tim, are, are, are friends over the years. Uh, I can't claim that of you yet, but you are friends with one of my absolute best buddies on the planet, Mark Harris, and he works as chaplain with Christians in, in Parliament. And you're gather, part of a, a weekly Bible study and fellowship group that, that, that Mark leads. Yeah. I love yeah. the, the concept, by the way, you might want to talk into that, that you know, these groups of mm. MPs and peers cross party all parties it's really precious isn't it you, the unity of the body of christ across parties yeah i mean it's interesting i have literally just come from my um bible study fellowship time um led by mark harris um, mm -hmm. before um joining you simon and and in that group you know I, there's well, there's several conservative mps several labor mps uh, one or two members of the scottish national party an independent peer a conservative peer and me, <laughs> and led by Mark and his colleague uh, Claire, who have become really great friends, who run Christians in Parliament, which is very much not a campaign organisation and very much a fellowship. And uh, and it's you know amongst the things I've learned in my time in politics, one of the dangers for a Christian politician is that you can become a coal out of fire. Mm. Uh, you aren't as connected with your church as you might be because you are away half the week and you don't do your house groups. And and I've suffered very much, I think, you know, I'm a culprit rather than the victim, but I've, I'm, I've suffered very much from that uh, absence or, or that, that sort of um, uh, punctuated, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, fellowship experience over the last sort of 16 and a half years. And yet the thing that helps massively, and, and in the last few years especially, is being part of a... A parliamentary fellowship that that Mark leads. Terrific. I was involved in a sort of similar one, not as a member of parliament, but facilitating in Burundi, which is where I sort of Great. spent twenty years. And uh, amazing. Very powerful, very powerful experiences uh, we had across. You know, in a, in a context of massive suspicion and uh, post-genocide mm. conflict, and people, yeah, who had killed each other's family members, being reconciled. You know, across the political divide. Absolutely stunning. Mm. Now, listen. Um, I would love to just go back. You know, it's we can read about um, your life. Uh, you know, I did some research but I'd love to go back earlier in terms of what shaped you and, and, and your youth and upbringing. What would be the sort of key building blocks of your life from your childhood upwards and, and, and coming to faith? Well, I wasn't brought up in a, um, in a Christian uh, home, really. Uh, I mean, I guess which, I was born in 1970, so I think vestiges of churchiness were still around mm -hmm. um, for that generation. Most of my friends, very few people I knew went to church, some, but not very many. Yet we would still be taught default Bible stories at school. So an awareness of, of, of faith, awareness of Christianity, an assumption that because you're English, you're therefore Christian, 
a generally positive view of Jesus, but also a bit of a ossified one. You know, this mm-hmm. is a, an old book, thousands of years old. Uh, this seemed like a very nice, wise, lovely human being who lived thousands of years, a couple thousand years ago. I'm sure he can teach us something, but he's not all important to us. My parents split up when I was just shy of my fifth birthday. My mm-hmm. sister was and is uh, two years younger than me. My mum passed away, what, gosh, 17 years ago now, but, um, at, you know, in her early 50s, sadly. But she was a, a, a great mum and taught me to think and taught me to be very sceptical about um, all sorts of things, ask questions. I think a very English sort of uh, sniffiness about anybody who takes anything too seriously. Right. <laughs> Don't be too keen, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that... Uh, didn't mean that faith was completely, you know, tipped out of our experience, but certainly anybody who was to, you know, live for Jesus. And um, so when I became a Christian at 18, she certainly found that quite a, a tricky and challenging thing. Before she died, when she was just, what, 54, um, she did come to put her trust in Jesus, which is mm, an amazing right. thing. And, and in no small part, I think, because, well, I guess that because I was there and able to share the gospel with us. So I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful f- for that. But yeah, so brought up to ask lots of questions. I, I, I always say, and I think it's, well, so it, here's, here's how I think I became a Christian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, she was, um, I mean, so she struggled, you know, there were times where she had very little money whatsoever. Um, you know, she was divorced from my dad, but I remember her telling me years, years later that she pawned her wedding ring just to pay for the mortgage. Uh, so things were not always very easy. Although my dad was very helpful, but he didn't have a load of money either. Uh, but when she she went back to university, she ended up becoming a lecturer at what was then Preston Polytechnic, but is now the University of Central Lancashire. Mm-hmm. And to cut a long story short, she got seconded with half the rest of her department to go and help run a college in Singapore, which, by the way, wow. completely bombed um, and <laughs> failed. Didn't uh, but but the the point is, I went with her, um, and I I think I'd only been abroad once in my life before then and um, spent most of the summer between A-levels and university. So, you know, finishing um, full-time education then going into university education. And the house that we were put in had been lived in by previous employees of that college, academics, who'd moved on to do something else. But they'd left their books behind in um, in the room that I got plonked in. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I got bored and I ended up reading some of them. And there were these terrifying and weird God books. And without going into too much detail, uh, it struck me that, gosh, Christianity's true. I'd better mm-hmm. do something about it. Um, now, my quick caveat to that is, and it only really occurred to me years later, that my mum, for all that she was a sceptic and, and not a Christian when I was a child, you know, she was very much a child of the 60s and had friends who were even more child of the 60s, children of the 60s, and very much into every wacky idea going. And she had a lovely friend called Yvonne, who was into all sorts of wacky things, Nostradamus, you know, mm-hmm. astrology, all that kind of thing. But she also met somebody as she searched who was a Christian. And I remember Yvonne and this guy who I've never met, but I'll never forget his voice, uh, being around. And he encouraged my mum and Yvonne to ask Jesus into their hearts. And I was upstairs in bed and I heard it and I thought, that sounds really important. And I did it and I was nine. Yeah. <laughs> um, and in the years that come, and I thought nothing else about it since. And the years since though, or rather more recently in the last five or 10 years, it's occurred to me that God is neither deaf nor forgetful Mm-hmm. nor contemptuous or sniffy about um, a childlike 
or a non-intellectual, a simple um, inquiry, prayer, expression of faith. So I don't think God was snorting. He doesn't know what he's doing. Um, As I look back, I kind of think from that point on, in the nicest possible way, my fate was sealed. But who knows? But it's, it's helped to break my... It's, been, it's helped to be a rebuke to me because there is a slight sense when I talk about my coming to faith as an 18-year-old that what I'm really saying to the world is that I'm a terribly clever person who cleverly discovered Christianity and how true it is. Well, actually, that's a load of rubbish. Um, obviously, in any event, it's a load of rubbish because uh, God reveals I don't discover. Yeah. But in any event, maybe, just maybe, that was a stepping stone along the way, um, a journey that began with me with a completely innocent, childlike expression as a, as a nine-year-old. Mm. So I think you went to Newcastle University, was that right? And did, is that a place where you, your faith got cemented and rooted? Yeah, I mean, ups and downs. So yes, and it's also a place where I fell, um, <clears throat> you know, and there were some real challenges as well. It was a place I got baptised. But so, you know, so I became a Christian, let's say, at 18, away at university, oh, not away, you know, it was away in Singapore. Mm-hmm. I did not meet, that was the beginning of August, maybe even the 1st of August, 1988, I was 18. Mm-hmm. I go to university the very end of September, let's say the 29th of September uh, that year. So that's a good two months which doesn't that's not long but in in one sense it was an age um i went so i became a christian in singapore and then for the next eight or nine weeks i didn't meet another christian Mm. i know i I told people i told my mum she thought it was strange i came home from singapore about two three weeks later and all my mates who were still my mates i should say um none of whom were christians all you know i told them quite enthusiastically and it worried them uh a because there's quite implications for them and b Tim's gone mad. (laughs) Um, But I never actually met another Christian until I get to university. And I get a knock on the door um, in my uh, Hall of Residence room from my next door neighbour, who at that point obviously I had not met. It was a tall second year medic called Pete. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, he invited me to Navigators. Now, mm-hmm. you probably know many of you yeah. Navigators, the kind of international Christian sort of student movement. Um, and this guy, Pete, kind of had no idea that I was a Christian. There was no mm-hmm. sign on my door. I'd yeah. said nothing to no one. <laughs> Um, and yet he knocked on my door and invited me. And that was the beginning of me, you know, getting some fellowship and and beginning to mature as a Christian, brackets, you know. I often say that I think, and I say I often say, I've picked it up off somebody else, but, um, you know, the, the, the challenge for Christians in so far as the world's concerned is twofold. One is to hide away and the other is to blend in. Um, yeah. And they're opposite temptations. And for me, the temptation has always been to blend in. And so, yes, I, in one sense, I matured and um, began established in my faith at university. And I also did a heck of a lot of blending in, involved in politics, you know, going out on the town. Uh, most of my mates were not Christians. Um, so, you know, it was a let, let's not... Let's not pretend that my time at university was uh, saintly and, um, you know, a a, a vertical uh, uh, introduction into the faith. Yeah, no, me too. Um, So in terms of your political uh, consciousness, um, Mm. that was presumably being shaped then. And and did I read that you started out, you know, conservative and there was a time when you were late? I mean, was there flip-flopping in terms of finding your identity and your your thinking? Well, perhaps not. I mean, I think so... um, if I look back and even think of myself now to a degree, but part of my 
Yeah, I always say van- vanity is the um, uh, is the sin that is the real problem for, for um, uh, politicians. Some, mm-hmm. Somebody once said that politics is showbiz for ugly people. You're not good at anything else, so you want to be on the telly. It's one way of managing it. Um, but so vanity. So I think you know, um, and I think there's a level of. So I was an awkward kid. But a seriously awkward kid. I wasn't a cool awkward kid. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was into stuff, the music, the football teams, and the politics that nobody else was into. Now, so I remember as a, as a child, there was a. It's been re- brought back from um, stasis recently. That it was much better when I was a kid. Spitting image, sort of the right. puppet um, kind of lampooning satire show, uh, which mostly focused on politics. And so politics was the thing we all talked about. I think that you know, in the days, only three or four channels. There was Top of the Pops, a music show on a Thursday night, and a spitting image on a Sunday night. And the following morning at school, we were all full of, did you see, did you see? So even people who were not interested in politics would think spitting image was funny, and they'd all be able to do the voices of the people doing the voices of the politicians. So there's an element of that. So there was part of me that really quite admired Margaret Thatcher just because everybody else hated her. (laughs) Um, But I got, at school, I was blessed with doing economics, O-level, as they were. And I think as I saw, you know, the joblessness around me in, in Lancashire, um, I didn't start to hate Margaret Thatcher or anything like that. And I, But I started to think, do you know, I do not agree with this woman. Mm-hmm. I might think she's an, an, an admirable person. Um, I quite like the people who are prepared to be unpopular to do what they believe in. But I, agree, I discovered that I did not agree with her. Um, one little bit and some of what she did I thought was quite... You're morally wrong. I mean, you know, it, my my take is that the government at those times you deliberately created more unemployment than was necessary because it was an economic and political tool. Um, it kept mm. trade union membership down. Mm-hmm. It kept you know price inflation down. Now, I mean, you know, using other people's misery to achieve a political end is is well. I mean, that is a definition of wickedness. I would say. So, mm-hmm. uh, but it doesn't mean I hated Margaret Thatcher. I'm not one of these people who goes you know, get red in the face about her. But I did admire her. Um, but I was clear that I wasn't. Uh, her. And then, then a supporter of hers. And then, you know, I remember watching a, a Kathy Come Home um, when I was about 14, which is obviously a film about, um, you know, homelessness. And, and it made me, well, basically it made me, I mean, I, I would say I get involved in politics properly because something made me cry. Um, mm. That made me cry. I joined Shelter. I went and bought a postal order for £1.50. Um, if anybody knows what a postal order is these days, but I did. And, um, and joined Shelter. That was my first political act. And I was also, yeah, maybe an awkward kid. I'd go to sixth form um, college and my first, you know, week or so there, um, I joined the, the, the Liberals, uh, largely because I was fairly sure I wasn't Labour or Tory. And I had this vague sense that I liked the cut of the Liberals' jib. I liked the fact that they were awkward. I liked mm. the fact that they were the party to join if you weren't, you know, a crowd follower. <laughs> Yeah, interesting. Now, did you, can you can you just uh, we talk about liberalism and 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 lots of people would struggle to define it from from different you know sides of the pond typically. But yeah, can you define liberalism and how do your Christian values interface with with and inform your political ones? Well, look, I joined a political party and got very politicised before I became a Christian, and I do you know on my podcast I talk to lots of Christian politicians, and I'm always. I won't say envious, but maybe slightly, um, full of admiration of those MPs who are Christians who who entered politics because they felt a calling. Um, It was a thing that they would could do to serve God and serve their neighbour out of their Christian faith. And that wasn't the case for me. Um, I almost had to kind of, you know, recalibrate my 
my politics having become a Christian. I remember, I mean, again, the title of, the, of my podcast is A Mucky Business, and that comes from a conversation I had with a, a lad called Adrian who would at a coffee morning or something with the navigators. Really nice lad in my whole residence. He had a twin who was also in my whole residence. And he just, you know, very, very kindly, he wasn't being horrible about this. He said, you know, Tim, why are you involved in politics? It's a mucky business. Mm. It's not really a good thing for a Christian to do. I don't remember what my answer was then, but the years that followed, I've thought about it a lot and thought, well, yes, politics is a mucky business, but then again, so is everything else since the fall. Um, and it's an opportunity and an arena in which to serve. It's a mission field. Um, but in terms of liberalism, I mean, obviously there's various different angles you could look at, but, um, you know, to, to be a libertarian is to say, I can do whatever I want and I should be allowed to do whatever I want mm-hmm. and I am not a libertarian. A liberal says that people should be able to do what they want so far as it doesn't injure anyone else or impinge upon their rights, at which point we then have to have a debate. And liberalism is in therefore quite an attractive ideology, if you like, because it isn't scientific and black and white. It involves you thinking and making compromises. Yeah. It's why I kind of admire Marxists or almost feel, you know, again, a slight bit of envy of, of them because the world's so simple. <laughs> it mm-hmm. really is black and white. There is a scientific solution to everything. And liberalism says, no, there isn't. And again, when it, in these days of, you know, what people call cancel culture and freedom of speech concern and all that kind of thing, the thing is... Uh, any old fascist can defend the rights of people who are like them and who they fully approve of. Yeah. It takes a liberal to defend the rights of people that you don't understand, don't agree with, and don't approve of. Mm-hmm. Um, and given that we as Christians can find ourselves in the unapproved of category, <laughs> yeah. we should be very careful um, if we go around cancelling, should we say, people who think different things to us because that could apply to us as well. And actually, you know, if you look at the genesis of the Liberal Party, the Liberal Movement in the UK in the 19th century, that's exactly where it came from. It was led by evangelicals, nonconformists, um, uh, Gladstone and others, um, uh, a, because I think there's something innately uh, Christian about liberalism in that it's about the value and the dignity of every single human being. But or B, a very utilitarian thing, is that, you know, uh, non-Anglican Christians uh, in the UK, so Bible-believing Christians and others in the 19th century were, were persecuted. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, the Liberal Party kind of came out of that it, kind of, it was a values thing, but also a utilitarian thing. And, you know, my fear is that not just not just liberal parties, but all parties have kind of forgotten how much of our small L, small D liberal democracies in the West of, uh, in, 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 in the world's West owe their very existence to values which are unmistakably biblical. Yeah. Hey folks, I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I'm loving the response we're getting from across the world. It's, it's just wonderful to see how encouraging and inspiring it is being and hitting the spot. Listen, if you are being blessed by it, I'd love it. Basically, this happens under the auspices of our ministry, Great Lakes Outreach, which works in the poorest and the hungriest country in the world, which is Burundi. We're having an incredible impact in the toughest of circumstances. We want to carry on supporting those local folks doing a great job. So if you wanted to, greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash inspired you could make a donation there i'd so appreciate it also it's word of mouth isn't it so gossip this these podcasts to other people get them to subscribe give us a great review absolutely wonderful so grateful to you so that's greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash inspired if you want to do a monthly a couple of quid a month or or a one-off donation we'd be incredibly grateful all right 
Now let's get back to the podcast. As followers of Jesus, you know, we're called to tell the truth. How do we follow that calling in a world where, especially in politics, lying seems to become so utterly normalised and modelled from the top? Mm. So I think, um, well, obviously, you know, the, the temptation is a very real thing, isn't it? And temptation mm. is, is hard. I mean, the Bible study we've just done, we've been looking at Hebrews 4 and 5 and how um, Jesus was tempted in any way and resisted. And Mark Harris, our mutual friend, um, quoted uh, C.S. Lewis of Mere Christianity. Only, only someone who's tried to resist temptation has realised how hard it is. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, there are lots of temptations we all face. And when your currency is popularity, um, because that's what you, when we all as human beings have this desire and need almost to be, to be loved and thought well of, but in politics, there's that. And there's, again, the utilitarian need to, you know, win a majority so you're in power, yeah. um, or at least win your seat. And so there's a temptation to over-egg the pudding. And so here's, um, uh, so lying is always wrong and all human beings do it. I think there is a, there is a difference, however, of scale between making a promise in an election that you kind of sort of um, sincerely, fairly sincerely, but maybe absent-mindedly make, um, and there's a bit of exaggeration there, and you get into power and you realise, actually, I can't do this. Well, that's, that's wrong, um, and that's a bre- breach of trust. But you talked about normalisation of lying, and at the risk of you know, sounding like an old guy saying the old days were better because, you know, they weren't in many ways. They fear, I fear um, that in the in uh, Western democracies in recent time, not just in Western democracies, but principally, whether it's via, you know, the rise of fake news or the development of a, of a, of a culture war, which is stoked by some, not telling lies is a strategy rather than just an accident. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I find that deeply troubling because you know truth is um something we as christians need to need to cling to and it's something that christians in politics need to be particularly aware it's part of our witness but also part of us being salt um in a rotten system is just to be intolerant of um uh, of lies because what what governments do what political movements do is recognize that in a world of you know a, a, an avalanche of uh, social media and a 24-hour news that if you can you know you do something awful and you just lie about it and you just tough it out for three or four days the news cycle will move on and you will not be held to account and people have worked that out mm-hmm. and they've also worked out that in this day of culture war people will vote for you because you're the guy who upsets the people you really hate and yeah. so the people who vote for you don't really care um, about your moral integrity so they just care about using you to break the wind and and so um, I think that whatever we think about politics and politicians as a breed, there is something which the media and we as a society as a whole are partly responsible for, which politicians have to lead in, uh, a really troubling um, movement, development in the last 10 years, let's say, um, in our discourse where lying absolutely becomes normalised, like you say, and almost part of the strategy. Mm. Yeah, it's... Uh... It's very discouraging, objectively, isn't it, to just observe and see modelled literally by the leaders down. Um, Mm. Now, looking at your career, obviously you're very popular in your neck of the woods because you've been re-voted in, I think, um, 
So from 2010, 2015, there were 57 Liberal Democrat MPs, and then only eight of you survived. So the <laughs> coalition time was pretty disastrous. But you were one of the eight, which yes. I guess <laughs> meant that, that that sort of propagated you to to the position of, of leadership. Um, yeah. How did you find uh, and how did your faith enable you or limit you in your leadership of the Liberal Democrats? Well, I think... Um, I said earlier on that vanity is the great um, uh, temptation, I think, for people, uh, Christians, are in, well, people who are involved in politics. And so, you know, I prayed about whether I was done for leader, but I think my desire to be leader meant that maybe I didn't rest upon God and inquire of him quite as sincerely as I might. Um, there was a sense in which, with, I mean, I say I've been a member of the largest ever Liberal Democrat um, group in Parliament and the smallest ever group in Parliament. And um, and so when there's eight of you, you've just come out of government, um, the, the absolutely shattering experience for the party to lose 90% of its MPs, pretty much, 80 mm. yeah. percent um, And I certainly told myself that, you know, I, th- there was an opportunity... Um, which I write about in my in my book, A Better Ambition, that um, that maybe a year before the general election, where Nick Clegg, our former leader and the deputy prime minister, may have stepped down. I don't know how seriously he contemplated it, but he certainly spoke to me about it. So there was an opportunity that I might have become leader a year earlier um, at the back end of the coalition. And I didn't want Nick Clegg to step down for all sorts of good and honourable reasons. And I also didn't want him to step down because I didn't think I could do it. Um, I took the view that the skill set I had was not really suited to being Deputy Prime Minister, not at that point, <laughs> mm-hmm. but it was suited to perhaps galvanising and energising and motivating and inspiring um, as a kind of defiant rump, <laughs> a party that had been battered and bruised and needed putting back together again. I thought I had those skills, but not the skills necessary to sit in a big office and run the country, <laughs> not at that point. Sure. Um, so... I think I was aware of what my abilities were and what they weren't. But nevertheless, you know, the great honour to become a party leader is something that is quite beguiling. So it's not that I shouldn't have stood, but I think I should have been prepared to have had people ask me more questions and to inquire more of God as to what I do. Because when all said and done, you know, so I became leader. I did two years, you know, on the on the. You know, that we, we rebuilt our local government presence, started winning elections again mm-hmm. in the general election that I was leader during. We increased our numbers back from eight to 12, so we moved in the right direction. So I think on, on the num- the party membership doubled, you know, on the, on the basic metrics, you know, um, you wouldn't give me 10 out of 10, but you'd probably give me a reasonable seven. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in terms of the metrics, but people will probably remember that I was that guy who was a, you know, like a, a rabbit in the headlights, asked lots of questions about sin and what Christianity meant on moral issues like abortion, sexuality and, and what have you. And so I think the, and, you know, and I don't go around beating myself up about that at all um, um, because I'm much happier doing what I'm doing and I feel that God has called me to use what, profile I've got to be of use to him in politics and whatever else he calls me to do next. But there's no doubt that the, the media thought it was really very interesting that this guy was left of centre and liberal in his politics, but clearly, from their perspective, was a conservative evangelical. How does that work? And uh, you were defending, can't... weren't you? Defending the rights of uh, the LGBT community. You, you know, they, they, they viewed you as a friend, didn't they? Uh, well, that's, well, I think they did. And then you think, well, why can't you answer a simple question about what is and isn't sin? Um, and and I guess the point is, that you, you know, to go back to 
um, what I said earlier on, a, a true liberal defends the rights of people who make different choices to you, mm. um, and uh, which I didn't do, not as a kind of defensive thing, because I genuinely believe it. I mean, yeah. you know, uh, the guy who signed me up to the Liberals was gay. Um, I'm not sure if I knew that then, but at that time, but I soon afterwards did, and I realised he was properly bullied, properly bullied. Mm. Um, yeah. um, and, and that is outrageous and that's sort of one of the things that sort of motivated me um to think yes i'd chosen the right party but i think that what the bible says to us about sex and sexuality and everything else is a reminder that our identity in this life whether it's to do with our gender our sex or our politics or anything they're not unimportant of course they're not unimportant but they are comparatively puny when yeah. um compared to eternity and our relationship with God um, and but you know when you're the leader of a party which is getting like 90 seconds worth of coverage a day <laughs> during an election you haven't got time to do big theological answers and it was a real frustration that I felt as leader of the Liberal Democrats I was trying to talk about Brexit and the National Health Service and um, and pensions and so on yeah. and all people want to do is talk about Leviticus <laughs> yeah so, so with, just, Tim just without dredging it all up can you just uh, can yeah, you yeah. do two minutes on I mean you were being hounded did, weren't you to what was it to just literally say is gay sex a sin is that what it was mm. um, yeah that was that was kind of the the thing and i mean hounded is not the word i would use i mean i think in many ways you know, I, I i if i had been more open with my almost exclusively non-christian team around me mm. about this uh, about what the bible teaches about such things then i probably think we would have probably prepared better answers um in the in the end now as a rabbit in the headlights and mm. And so in the end, I kind of gave an answer, which is not really true, to, to kind of push it away, which, um, you know, I repent of and, and move on from. In, in, in the end, I think when I'm, when I'm asked about those questions now, I generally try and take, you know, let's remember what Jesus' example was, um, that he often didn't give a straight answer. He would often answer a question with a question. Mm-hmm. Um, because... It, the, the questioner doesn't necessarily need to know the thing they're asking. They need to know the thing that they need to know. And one thing that I've been helped to understand is that people need to, people get angry and understandably angry about the thought that um, a person might dislike them or disapprove of them or worse still want to persecute them. And none of those things are true from my perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we think about faith, let's remember this. If, if that, let's, you know, I would say to someone, if there is a God, let's just, you know, suspend disbelief for a moment. Let's assume there's a God um, and he's perfect and almighty and you're not <laughs> and I'm not. Um, then if that God just affirms everything you already think, um, pats you on the back and encourages you, then you can be pretty sure that insofar as God, that God is concerned, Richard Dawkins is right. He's a delusion. He's an mm-hmm. extension of you. You've made him up. Yeah. Because if there's a real God... Um, then he will contradict you and he will disturb you. And if you hear things which are contradicting you and disturbing you, there's a chance you've met the real God. Mm, yeah, that's good. So that led you, did, did that incident particularly, I mean, it was, you, you took your party by surprise when you resigned, didn't you? Um, yeah, I mean, let, let, you know, people um, don't remember this so much, but we, did, we had a by-election gain in Richmond Park, which was a big surprise. Uh, we made a call on Brexit, which, you know, uh, was marmite it offended some, but it inspired many others and it doubled 
arguably trebled our party membership. We started mm-hmm. winning council by elections. We increased our number of MPs by 50%, brackets, that's four. Um, yeah. <laughs> but nevertheless, so, you know, like I say, by any objective analysis, the the two years that I spent as leader saw, you know, making, you know, modest but very clear progress. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I think there were some people who were very dissatisfied by the fact that we spent the election campaign with me spending at least the first of those seven weeks of the campaign trying to fight off various theological <laughs> questions. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'd been successful and there was now a hung parliament and, you know, we were set to be quite significant again. I had made the decision during the election, though, that the problem, we could have done so much better in that election. That's the frustration. And the major reason was me. And it was a bit like I was, you know, if you've got an advertising hoarding and it's constantly vandalised by somebody and you can't read what's on it, you're not getting your message across. Sure. And that's kind of where I was, that I was the I was the main conveyor of the message for the party. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet people weren't hearing anything about Brexit or the NHS because all I was doing was trying to play a st- straight back to, um, you know, ever more obscure theological questions and uh, asked by people who didn't really want the answers. <laughs> and so I kind of took the view that I've either got to uh, and I took this during the, this decision early in the election campaign after all of this, I've either got to um, be a rubbish leader <laughs> and have to constantly bat this stuff away all the time and not get the party's message across, not do mm-hmm. my job properly, or I've got to basically, you know, backslide and say things I don't agree just to get rid of the issue. Um, and so either be a bad leader or be a bad Christian. <laughs> And I thought, well, that's a rubbish choice. Yeah. <laughs> so let's not do either of those. <laughs> and instead, you know, if following Jesus matters, let's let's put him first. Um, it was a great honour um, to be party leader. You know, I joined the party as a 16-year-old. I bought into the history and the culture of the party. I love the Liberals, its quirkiness. Mm-hmm. Um, and so many of my friends, you know, developed through my time in politics. I'd, you know, risen through the ranks, councillor, MP, backbencher, frontbencher, party president, party leader. So, you know, it meant an awful lot to me that I was party leader. And, and I was able to say, and I hope this was a reasonable act of witness, I was able to say, you know, but I'm going to give this up willingly. I don't have to. We've just done relatively well in the election. I don't have to give this up, but I'm going to um, because following Jesus is better and being yeah. faithful is better. Um, so I often think the most useful thing I've ever done as a Christian was to resign as leader. Mm. Well, I remember listening to you um, and, and, and reading your your speech. I reread it yesterday when you resigned as party leader. You, you said you were relinquishing the position for something, uh, I quote, so amazing, so divine, you know, from the hymn that it demands my heart, my life, my soul, my all. And so you, yeah, you were clear in your witness in your, in your, in your speech. And, and yet you said that, I forget the word exactly, but being a follower of Jesus seemed to be incompatible with maintaining a position in public office. Would that, would that be right? Well, I think it was for me. Um, and let's remember that, you know, um, two things. I was party president for the, for four of the five years that we were in coalition. Mm-hmm. I was leader for two years. I'm still a member of parliament, um, 16 and a half years on. So if there is a kind of glass ceiling for Christians in politics, it's relatively high. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I, as I said earlier on, I think if I had been more honest with my team, more open with my team about what my and and, and be and be prepared to cope with their 
horror <laughs> to what the Bible teaches on certain things. Yeah. Uh, because unlike them, younger than me, they wouldn't have grown up at a time where, you know, churchiness was still vaguely normal. This would have come as a terrible surprise to them that the Bible teaches uncomfortable things about the lives that we lead. But if I'd been, uh, which gives you an, ex- an explanation as to, as to why I was too chicken to do that. But if I hadn't been chicken, if we talked about these things, then I think I would have been able to answer that line of questioning maybe better. And uh, so, and I, I have since been felt really really blessed and really privileged to talk totally informally and I'm definitely not going to give any names at all but to other younger Christian politicians to talk them through how they might deal with these issues better than I did and I heard one of them on the radio not long ago doing a blindingly good job and this person will rise higher than I did, shall we say. Mm. Um, and so, I, yeah, no, Chris, Christians, I, mean, I, I met a lovely, a lovely, I went, ended up speaking at um, St. Helen, Helen's Bishop's Gate a couple of years ago, which was a real uh, blessing, and I met lots of great people as a result. But the reason that happened was because a young guy who was in the congregation um, spoke to me at a bus stop outside Westminster, um, and he said, I was going to get involved in politics. He, oh, he said, I'm a big fan. And um, was the effect of, I was going to get involved in politics, and then you put me off. <laughs> <laughs> And the point, and the point being, you know, because of all the things we've just discussed. But um, I, and I think, well, that's that's a that's an interesting perception, and it's a shame. And don't be put off. Learn, learn from my mistakes. Don't be put off. Yeah. Uh, so uh, my, my involvement in Burundi, so twenty years in Africa, we've been desperately trying to raise uh, critical thinkers. And, and patriots that love their nation that will engage in politics. But it is, it's really is a matter of life and death out there because it's uh, very dangerous to, to, mm-hmm. to be in opposition, essentially. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so out there, I'm trying to get people to, 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 to stand, uh, that uh, have a, a higher sort of set of values. Um, you, you'd be sort of imploring people, would you, to, to not be put off politics to sign up and get involved? Yeah. Well, I mean, part of my mission today, so I, I have a small organisation called Faith in Public, um, which helps me to do helps me to do Christian stuff, Simon, mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, a whole bunch of things, whether it be my passion for supporting refugees or those in housing need, but also making the case for um, uh, for the gospel in a, in a in a public way, and also helping to equip Christians to think about politics. And we have our, you know, another mutual friend, um, Andy Fanagan, who runs um, uh, Christians in Politics. And I always think that what, what Andy and his team do is about trying to recruit Christians into active political life at the top level to stand mm-hmm. for Parliament, for example. The faith in public, part of my mission, I think, is to try and reach to the, to the 97% who will never um, be in that sphere, but who will instead... Um, I nevertheless believe need to care about politics. So politics is a, a mucky business, but it's 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 real, and Christians should be praying about it. If someone says that you know their wife is ill, what's the what do you want to know as a Christian? You want to know what her name is and what's wrong with her, so that you can pray for her uh, in an informed way. Likewise with politics. So the danger is that Christians, like anybody else, can fall. Um, uh, foul of fake news and and so we need to be approaching Christi- uh, politics from a Christian perspective and thinking about it. You don't need to join a party and for the council or even parliament to be somebody who cares about the politics of the country, of their community maybe even further afield and being informed is right and having opinions, forming opinions from a biblical perspective which will not necessarily flush you to one party or another but forming those opinions is really important and so that's the kind of thing that I I'm, I'm very passionate about that we need to be culturally literate 
Mm. We often dismiss the society being religiously illiterate. Well, I would, you know, glibly say that's society's problem. Cultural illiteracy is our problem, you know, and if we don't speak the language of the culture we've been put, then we won't communicate the gospel very well. So we need to understand it and pray about it, care about it, um, so that we can speak to our society. You don't need to, as somebody once said, worship the local gods in order to speak the local language. And on top of that, politics is a way of serving people in the now. I think the the life of Jesus tells us that although he knew all was going to end well, I assume that, I mean, particularly the raising of Lazarus, I think is an amazing story uh, and an account um, of, and I'm sure, I don't know for certain, but I'm pretty sure Jesus must have known that in a few moments time, he was going to raise Lazarus, but he didn't go, hey, come on, girls, pull yourselves together. Um, It's all going to end fine. Uh, Just wait and see what I'm going to do to Martha and Mary. No, instead he entered in very utterly sincerely to their great pain and anguish. Mm. Um, and and I think that's what we're called to do. Yes, it is all going to end well. So don't panic about politics if you're a Christian, but do get involved, do care, enter into the now, feel and experience and join in with the pain and the suffering of the now and serve to do your little bit better in the place that you've been put. We've been called to love our neighbour and politics is a great way to do that. Mm. Yeah, what you're saying makes me think of a, a quote I often share on, from from Jim Jim Wallace. Don't know if you come across him, but uh, he says, you know, when we talk about get being engaged, it's so easy to have a default, and so many people are cynical about politics these days. And cynicism or action, it seems to be a choice, because cynicism ultimately protects you from commitment. And if he, he writes, if things are not really going to change, then why try so hard to make a difference? And if you have middle-class economic security, as many cynics do, things don't have to change for you to remain secure. That's not intended to sound harsh, just realistic. Cynics are finally free just to look after themselves. And perhaps the only people who view the world realistically are the cynics and the saints. Everyone else may be living in some kind of denial about what is really going on and how things really are. And the only difference between the cynics and the saints is the presence, the power, the possibility of hope. And hope's not a feeling, it's a decision. And the decision for hope is based on what you believe at the deepest levels. You choose hope, not as a naive wish, but as a choice with your eyes wide open to the reality of the world, just like the cynics who have not made the decision for hope. And I think, yes, with regards to uh, politics and, and people sort of steering clear, there is so much cynicism. But the antidote to cynicism, as Jim Wallace writes, is, is, not, is, not, uh, is, is, is action. It, it's not optimism. It's action that's born out of hope. And we, as well as Jesus, do have a hope-filled message. So oh, I love what you're saying there, Tim. Have you got any sort of anecdotes or you can think of times where you saw Jesus you know, clearly at work in, in, in your life over the last few years? Well, yes. I mean, and I think above all else, revealing his amazing grace and reminding us how low the bar is set. So I think the two things that strike me, in the midst of that um, general election when I was leader, where at times I felt I've not said the right thing, I've not said the right thing for God, and, you know, I've, I've done a wrong thing here, I've been a bad witness. And a very good friend of mine, in fact, my pastor, Paul, um, said to me, the thing for Christians is that sin spoils our relationship with God, but it doesn't end it. And I remember just like an absolute dam had broken when I heard that, um, that my 
position and my my place in God's kingdom was secure um, because it was not dependent upon me and it isn't dependent upon me. Um, uh, salvation is by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. Um, not in me having, you know, somebody, something else somebody said to me was that, um, you know, you are as acceptable to God on your worst day as a Christian as you are on your best because it's not about your performance. And I think that, that doesn't give me a sense of liberation to go and do, oh, well, I'll go and do what I like now. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't. It gives me an immense appreciation of this awesome God who um, loves us and has sent his son to save us that, uh, that you want to obey a God like that. <laughs> So I think that was really powerful for me and just just a, a real experience of grace. And the you know, grace is thing, something that we might intellectually get to feel it is a beautiful, beautiful thing. The other thing, so I mentioned earlier on about me asking myself really a bit more um, uh, these days, not that it matters that much, you know, when did I actually become a Christian? Was it when I was nine? And, and I think that I come across a quite, a, as I interview you know, Christian politicians for my um, Mucky Business podcast, you you come across people who will say, you know, I ask people for their their story. How did you become a Christian? Um, and a lot of them um, were raised um, in a Christian family and became a Christian at, you know, really, like, you know, much younger than nine. And I found that as a real rebuke to me and a reminder that the bar to becoming a Christian is incredibly low to non-existent. That, you know, we, we can think, as I said earlier on, that Christianity is something that, you know, we, you know, we, we, we cleverly discover. Um, that there's some kind of intellectual, you know, bar we've got to get above, some critical faculties you've got to have. And I think that's a revelation through talking to fellow Christians of other parties uh, about their coming to faith. Some of them do have dramatic stories in later life, but some of them have really simple stories of, of you know, an, an infant-like, you know, trust in Jesus that has grown over the years. And and it, re- it reminds us that, 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 you know, therefore Christianity is absolutely open to everybody. You could be a person living with dementia. You could be a person with learning difficulties. Uh, and you could be a person who is, you know, five years of age, <laughs> um, who hears something in Sunday school and decides to follow Jesus and just keeps that up. So I think that is, a, again, a reminder of just how, how accessible Jesus is. Mm, yeah. We're sort of slowly coming towards an end now. Uh, you know, many politicians, uh, once they've lost their ministerial position or leadership position, they they step down at an MP, as an MP in the next election. You haven't done that. So um, what are you up to now? Well, so um, I obviously love serving my constituency. Um, with how long that'll last for, I don't know. We've got boundary changes coming, so that'll be an interesting challenge. Um, um, we'll see how long God decides to keep me in this place. But um, I mean, I, you know, it's a great honour to serve as the leader of the party. But it's an honour and a joy <laughs> to serve as a constituency MP for you know where I live, Lake District, Yorkshire Dales. It's an absolutely glorious place to serve and wonderful people, people who've faced lots and lots of challenges as well. But in terms of what I've done, I mean, since I stepped down as leader, um, I set up Faith in Public, um, which again helps me to um, do a number of things and um, uh, not least to be able to write and to speak on matters of faith and to try and use what profile I've got to give people who've not heard the gospel that much a chance to hear it, to try and make the, you know, I talked about the simplicity of um, of the gospel and the uh, how, how Jesus accepts people of 
whatever background, whatever intellectual capacity. But nevertheless, we live in a, a time where people think Christianity is unreasonable and irrational and old-fashioned and all that kind of thing. And having the opportunity in the world that I'm moving to be able to share the gospel and to explain there's deep rationality behind um, Christianity, um, and indeed it's more rational than the alternatives. Uh, it's something people find surprising, and I try graciously to take the opportunities that I have to to make that case. So yeah, I'm, I'm my most important thing I do as a as a Christian is to is to serve the people that I've been put alongside in my community and be a good MP. But in my kind of post ambitious, um, slightly venerable state, <laughs> I do have opportunities to work across party, hopefully to be trusted by people across party to be known as a Christian and to seek to be faithful as a Christian and not least in trying to yeah, equip Christians to think about politics in a more biblical way and to reach out to those people who've yet to hear the gospel or yet to accept it, to give them an opportunity to hear it and respond. Mm, terrific. Last question, maybe. What, what, what do you think God's teaching you at the moment? Well, to rely on him, to be dependent upon him. The thing that I need is mercy and I need it from him and only he can offer it. Uh, yeah, I think it's yeah depend dependency on the right things, and and that right thing is God. Mm. Tim, it's been a real pleasure. Why don't you spend the last uh, minute just um, plugging a few things that you know? If we want to sort of read more about you, talked about a better ambition. That was the book you wrote, Faith in Public. Anything else? Yeah, well, so yeah, a better, a better ambition, um, which uh, is uh, available in in some good book shops, <laughs> I believe, <laughs> and probably some bad ones as well, um, uh, where you can find out about all sorts of things, including my failed pop career. Um, uh, but the podcast that I do regularly now called A Mucky Business which I do every week and which is features much more interesting people than me um, politicians from all different parties um, very senior ones um, and some people with some interesting stories from outside directly the world of politics and it's a bit about trying to introduce people to the mucky business of politics and understanding what Christians are doing and can do in that world so um, download it and like it please <laughs> Great stuff. Oh, Tim, it's been a real treat. Thanks so much for coming on. You're very welcome. It's been a real joy, Simon. Thanks for having me. Brilliant. Well, everybody, I hope you've been inspired. Um, it's interesting, a few weeks ago we had um, Andy Flan. Andy Flan again yes. talking about Christians uh, in politics. And so we've had a, a few uh, recent ones on politics. I love it how across uh, across all sort of different walks of life, followers of Jesus are, are, are modelling and living out their faith in inspiring ways. So I hope you've been inspired this week. I have next week. We'll have another fantastic guest. Uh, do give us a great review if you've enjoyed it and uh, share it with someone who you think will enjoy it. Uh, if you want to be in touch with me, simongilbert.com and various social media platforms. In the meantime, have a good week. We'll see you next time and God bless. Toodaloo.